Good afternoon everybody and welcome to Transcending Together with Julianne and Lee. Good afternoon beautiful and amazing human beings and welcome to Transcending Together with Julianne and Lee. Julianne's here, Lee's sitting next to me in the studio. Say hello Lee. Hello everybody, thank you for listening in today. And everybody say hello. I heard that actually, if you can believe it. (laughs) (laughs) So as I said at the end of the last episode, I do hope you guys are enjoying the content that we're sharing and please if you can reach out to us on at truck that's t-r-u-c-k underscore t-t on twitter or on our substack which is tigergirl.substack.com because we would love to know if you're out there and what your interests are and make sure that we're talking about things that matter to you because for the most part Lee and I make sure we talk about things that matter to us but that's kind of easy in a way because we know the subject matter that we're talking about but we both love researching so we would love to receive your challenges to take on interesting topics. So today's topic is about economics and more specifically capitalist economics economic theory, I wrote this paper or this essay in 2008 in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And I was working for Barclays Bank at the time and having been in the heart of the beast, if you like, the things that I saw there were just absolutely abhorrent. And I have not worked in financial services since then. I have done a lot of studying over the years. And I think if I was ever to be anything, it would probably be an economics teacher. Although the problem is, because I'm a devout socialist, I think there probably wouldn't be a school that would take me except for maybe London School of Economics, because apparently that is a seedbed of socialist activity. Well, according to the right wing anyway. So Lee, let me ask you something first off. What do you understand about economics? What do you Like you, Julie, I've got quite an interest in economics, actually. I've done my own research into economics. And when you actually make a study of it and you realise how it all works and where money comes from, it's quite scary. And a lot of people don't understand it. Where does money come from, Lee? Out of thin air. Magic money tree, (laughs) It comes out of thin air. It really does exist. We joke, but actually, I think we will be talking a little bit about that during this particular show. We Where do you stand on the economic spectrum? Are you socialist or capitalist, which seems to be the two ends of the spectrum? I would say capitalist, but more of a free market kind of capitalist, not this corporatism that's infused into capitalism. Yeah, it's actually quite interesting because there's so much going on in the UK at the moment around privatisation versus nationalisation. And last week we were reading about how Thames water was on the verge of collapse. And I think it's just a reminder that there, certainly from my perspective, there are a few fundamental principles which I hold to. And that is that there are certain rights which are inviolable. And that is the right to an education, 
the right to a roof over your head, the right to clean running water, the right to personal safety, the right to an education. And if the government just did those five things, we would live in a much better society than the one in which we live in now. I I obviously am very anti-capitalist. I think socialism, Marxism, communism, they have had their benefits. But the simple reality is in 2008, at the time of the financial crash, What we saw was massive corporate socialism, where the current economic system that we live in is one in which we capitalize the profits and we socialize the losses. And that seems to be the case. Yeah, I think it can sometimes come across as stealing from Peter to give to Paul kind of thing, in my opinion. You know, it's just one of those things. It it can swing in roundabouts. I think in general, it's taking from one lot and giving to another lot and just in this perpetual cycle. So back in 2008, when I was in the belly of the beast working in the financial services, I wrote this article because I was really frustrated because I I could see what the problem was. And at the time, when I originally wrote this article or essay, call it what you will, I actually called it credit as a drug and just as dangerous. I've changed the title to riding the tiger's back and the principle around riding the tiger's back. For those of you who don't know it, it's a Chinese proverb that says if you're riding a tiger's back is one thing and you're safe as long as you remain on the back of the tiger. But should you ever fall off, you become the tiger's dinner. And that to me really encapsulates where we are at the moment in terms of our current economic system is that credit is the tiger and people are riding the tiger's back And those among us who would say, well, people need to live within their means are only those people. In fact, the research which I've done recently shows that a survey of 2000 employees amid the UK's cost of living crisis finds 34% say they're living paycheck to paycheck. If they were to lose their job today, 56% couldn't afford basic utilities, 47% couldn't afford groceries, and 41% fear they'd go into debt. So the idea that people are living beyond their means, well, the reality is, if you invert the statistic, is that if you're living paycheck to paycheck, then you are living within your means as it stands. But if you were to fall off the tiger's back, you're done. For me personally, I rode that tiger's back and I fell off and I got eaten. And hence, I've got a debt management agreement in place because it is absolutely like a drug, the so-called credit system. And you just can't get out of it until you fall off the tiger's back. And I wonder if people aren't living beyond their means because they've got a huge credit card bill to pay every month on top of that. So what do they do? They take out more credit, payday loans and all that. Yeah, That's actually an interesting thing, the payday loans. Because the underlying principle of capitalist economic theory is supply and demand, right? Yeah. And if you want to see a nice chart on this, go to tigergirl.substack.com is the essay I originally wrote. And there's a nice little graph in there for those of you who didn't do economics. But basically what it says is that the more of a 
product that is available in a society, the cheaper the price. The cheaper the price, the more the demand is for that product. So what you get is that at a lower price, obviously demand is higher, and at a higher price, demand is lower. That makes sense, right? If, however, you're a supplier of that particular thing, a lower price is of less interest to you. But if the price is high, you're going to supply more of that. But it's a circular thing because the more you supply, the less demand there is relative to the number of items that are available. Think about it this way. You're walking past a fruit and veg seller in a market and he's got 10 apples and there's only two people who want apples. The guy wants to get rid of those apples because they're going to go off. So he's going to be a little bit keener to offer you a better price. However, if there's a queue for those apples, he's got 10 apples and there's 100 people who want it. Well, he can pretty much charge what he likes. And that, dear listeners, is capitalist economic theory. If demand outstrips supply, the price of the item will rise. And when I was studying economics, the thing which really struck me was that if you take another concept of capitalist economic theory, which is the economic cycle, the economic cycle works on the basis that you've got businesses and you've got households. The households supply their labor to the businesses to manufacture products and pay salaries to those households. And those people then use those salaries to buy the goods and services provided by possibly where they work or other enterprises that supply those things. And it all goes round and round in circles. And obviously, the government takes a bite out of the apple on both sides. So there has to be products for people to buy and there has to be people to make the products. And when I was looking at all of this, the thing which really struck me was that in a closed system, it is only the income of the households that really limit the amount that can be purchased. So there's an incentive on the side of the businesses to pay people more because then they'll be able to spend more. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, we give them yeah, more money. The more money you have. Then they can buy more Exactly, stuff. yeah. And the more money they have, the more things they'll demand. So it just goes round and round circles. It's, in theory, it actually all works. There is one thing that causes a problem with this. And this was really the thrust of my essay originally. And that is that the purchasing power of a household is not limited to the income of that household because there is an extra thing that households can access. What do you think that thing is, Lee? It's credit. Absolutely. Lee gets 10, what's it? 10 house 10 points. 10 house points. To, yeah. uh, to <laughs> I know we don't do Harry Potter anymore, do we? Because, yeah, okay. Well, you get 10 house points anyway. Absolutely. The ability to access credit inflates the purchasing power of a particular household. So think on that as we go into our first commercial break. And we will see you after this. Oh, I love this. We continue in moments. This is good. Yes, yes. You're locked to Trans Radio UK. Many website owners don't like their website hosting company or support provider, but are too scared to move to someone else in case they lose their site or it affects their business. Based in Telford at Purple Prince Media, we will move your website to us free of charge with the best support possible. And if you're looking to start up a business, we're also here to design and build your website from the ground up with unbeatable prices on web hosting and dedicated servers. We're also certified Magento developers, which is the world's biggest e-commerce platform. So, Rest assured, your online business is just a click away. 
Drop us an email on hello at purpleprints.co.uk or visit purpleprints.co.uk to get started. Purple Prints Media, the local website company. Win £25,000 and help truck listeners at the same time. Enter the Rainbow Lottery and click Truck Listens as your chosen organisation. And not only can you win £25,000, 50p of every ticket purchased will go to Truck Listens. Please see www.transradiouk.com and click Win £25,000 for more details. Ever thought about having your own radio show? Well, now you can, as we're looking for presenters to join our team. No experience is needed and minimal equipment required. For more information, email info at transradiouk.com. Transradio UK. Tune in via DAB in Ireland. Download our app via your smart speaker or online at transradiouk.com. Malcolm here. Don't go anywhere as we bring you some more trucking, great music and jazz here on Trans Radio UK. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. So just before the break, Lee had just won 10 house points for identifying that the thing which destabilizes everything is credit. Because up until that point, what a household earned was the limit to how much it could purchase. And the thing which I find most interesting about that is if you look at house prices, if there were no credit available, what do you think that would do to house prices? Well, people won't be able to buy them because there's no credit. So they'll have to save long and hard. So there'll be a surplus of houses on the market because people can't buy them. Yeah, there'd be more houses than demand. So what we were discussing before the break was that obviously means that the price will come down, right? Yeah. You know, 10 apples, two buyers. If only two people can afford to buy the apples, the seller of the apples has to lower the price in order to get his 10 apples sold. And it's the same thing with housing. This is the thing. And this is why if you go onto YouTube and you look around on YouTube, there are so many articles about this and videos about this where people are saying when their parents... Well, I saw this. I mean, if I just share my experience, when I first moved to South Africa in 1995, I got a mortgage to buy a flat, which was 150,000 rand. In 10 years, that flat was now worth 1.5 million rand. So it had gone up by multiples of hundreds. But the interesting thing is, of course, my salary hadn't. And that was the thing that really struck me. So by 2006, I already saw this because I'd been in South Africa for 10 years. I'd bought this flat for 150,000. It was now worth 1.5 million. But the thing was, now that I was married and wanting to start a family and all of those things, I needed to buy a house. But a house was going to cost me 2 million rand. So although the flat I had bought had increased in value, the house that I needed to buy now, because I was moving into this next phase of my life, was equally that much more expensive. That house, which was now 2 million rand was probably 200,000 rand 10 years prior but my salary hadn't gone up by the same amount and that's the thing that really struck me so I guess the stone in my shoe really started in 2006 when I looked at that and I thought hang on a minute this there is something out of whack here because I you know it's now gonna cost me I'm there's there's an adage in the property market which says 
you always sell in the market you're buying in. And people don't seem to understand this, that it seems like the value of their property has gone up exponentially, but it hasn't really because when they move to that next phase of their life, so when they're going from single person to married person to people with children to empty nest to retirement, in each of those iterations, they're only selling to buy the next thing that they need. So you never really win that war you might it might look like it's on paper but the reality is you don't really and it kind of comes back to this point which i was making around if you look at house prices the availability of credit fueled the rise in house prices and people have to borrow more and more and more And you look at that where 15 years ago, you could get, if you can believe this, a mortgage that was 120% of the value of the property you were buying. The banks would literally give you 120%. So if you were buying a flat for £100,000, they would lend you £120,000 and you would take that £20,000 and you would redo the kitchen or redo the electrics or whatever it is that that particular property needed. And that was zeroed deposit 120% mortgage. The legacy of that 15 years ago is the nightmare that we are living in now because people are just horrifically overextended. And now I've got friends who are trying to buy properties and they're unable to get mortgages on properties because the banks are saying, well, yeah, you qualify for a mortgage of whatever it is, but the property that you want to buy in our estimate is not worth that. So counterbalance those two points. 15 years ago, they would give you 20% over the value of the property and now they won't even give you 100% of the value of the property as a mortgage. Yeah, this this concept of seemingly limitless amounts of credit that's available just impacts on the upward spiral in terms of price increases because it has been fueled by easy credit access. And the result of that is that it tends to leave behind those households who can't access credit or who have reached their credit limit. And that just, you know, exacerbates the whole wealth inequality altogether. And this imbalance just continues to grow and grow. You know, how many young people actually move out of their parents' home after finishing their studies, things like that? They just can't afford it. They can't afford the mortgage. And they've got university loans to pay back and things like that. And it just exacerbates the problem and perpetuates it. Yeah, if you just look at it statistically, according to the Office of National Statistics, the average house price in 2008 was £169,000. In 2022, it was £305,000. So that's an 80% increase, which represents... 6% per annum over the 14 years. Comparatively, the average wage in the UK in 2008 was £1,881 a month, whilst in 2022, it was £2,648. So that's a 41% increase, but that only equates to 3% per annum over the same period of time. So houses are going up by 6%, but wages are only going up by 3%. So, (laughs) I mean, that in itself demonstrates the extent to which it's not people's income, it's not wages that are fueling inflation, because wages 
I mean, we hear this over and over again, wages are lagging everything when it comes to price increases and everything. And then if you look at Office of National Statistics, the Consumer Prices Index, including owner-occupiers' housing costs, rose by 8.8% between July 2021 and July 2022, but people only received a 3% income. So you got an 8% cost in everything else. And it just, oh my goodness, the whole thing, it's redundant. It doesn't work. This financial system that we exist in today is just broken, whichever way you look at it. I mean, even if you look at it from the perspective of, so I love gold. I don't know what it is. I think gold is an incredible store of wealth. And just to put it in perspective, let me give you some comparatives here. So you know where we said that house prices will have increased by, it says there they've increased 41%. Let me just go find that stat again. Yeah, 80% increase in household prices between 2008 and 2022. Two. However, now, so my dad, I mean, I didn't really have a lot of time for my dad, but the one thing which he said to me, which I found really interesting, was he said to me, he said, you know, 2000 years ago, if you had an ounce of gold, so we're talking about times of, you know, the Roman Empire and Jesus and all of those things. So if you went into the finest suit maker or clothing what do you call that? Well, you could go into the, you could go with an ounce of gold 2000 years ago. You could go into, I can't think what the name of that. I don't want to say clothing store because it undermines, <laughs> you know, Bond Street and those things. What are they? Taylor. 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 Right. So you, <laughs> you've got an ounce of gold and you go into a tailor in Rome. That ounce of gold will have bought you the finest toga with the finest pair of shoes. You would have walked out of there like a king. An ounce of gold today will buy you exactly the same thing. So an ounce of gold today, I think, is worth about £2,600. That's probably what it would cost you to get the finest tailored clothing from the finest Italian tailors and a good pair of finest Italian shoes. So in essence, gold is still worth today what it was 2000 years ago. And if you just look at it from the perspective of if we compare gold and in economics terms, we call this a base currency. What you have is in 2008, the average house. So if you remember what we said, that hundred and something thousand pounds house, if you compared that to the price of gold in 2008, you would have needed 390 ounces of gold to buy that house in 2008. If you were to buy that house today, it would only cost you 208 ounces. So is that an increase or a decrease? What do you think? It's quite interesting, that comparison, because that's something of fixed value that you can compare things to. So just say those numbers again. In 2008, it would have cost you 309 ounces of gold to buy the average UK house. And now it'll only cost you 208 ounces. That same house. So So even though it's gone up by 80% in pound terms. In gold terms, it's gone down. It's gone down. And gold hasn't changed in value in 2,000 years. So, you know, never mind 2008 to now. 
we're talking 2,000 years, that ounce of gold will still buy you the same thing. Therefore, it is still worth what it is worth. But that house, which, so when people sit back and they say, oh, do you know our house is now worth X times what we paid for it? You're like, yeah, but if you had bought 390 ounces of gold in 2008, what would that be worth? <laughs> so in real terms, it's a 47% fall in value between if you were to have, ha- if you had had to pay gold for that property, you would have given over 390 ounces of gold. Now you're going to sell it, you're only going to get 208 ounces back. And I don't care how you look at it, you've lost a lot of ounces of gold. And on that bombshell, <laughs> let's go back to our commercial partners and we'll be back after this. Oh, I love this. We continue in moments. This is good. Yes, yes. You're locked to Trans Radio UK. Are you trans and non-binary and feel like drugs or alcohol are impacting your life negatively? Why not check out Trans Sober? We're a grassroots peer support group for the community, by the community. Find us at www.transsober.org and join us online or come to one of our weekly drop-ins. We also offer other useful resources. Looking for business cards? Flyers? In fact, anything in print? We can help. Digital format specialists. www.printsmart.uk.com Think smart, print smart. Did you know you can advertise with us for less than a pound a day? Call 0207 856 0584 or email sales at transradiouk.com. Trans Radio UK, a global radio station. The whole LGBTQ plus community can be proud of. Are you looking for an intimate and affordable graphic design service? Are you an indie author needing help to publish your book? Theodora Rosenberg is here to help. With packages for marketing, publishing and branding available, you're sure to be satisfied. Find out more at authortheorose.com Trans Radio UK is on right now. Across the UK and beyond. Now, now, more of the music you love. Trans Radio UK. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. Just before the break, we were talking about gold as a base currency. So it used to be, and I don't know how many of you know this. Did you know this, Lee? That back in the day, your pound note used to say on it... I promise to pay bearer on demand two pounds or one pound. Do you know what that was all about? I I remember that. And that was like a, a promissory note, wasn't it? It was to pay the bearer basically the... What were they going to pay the bearer? The, the value of the gold compared to that two pound. Exactly. Yeah. That's when it used to say, I promise to pay the bearer. What it meant was you could go into the Bank of England, present your two pound note and receive two pounds worth of gold. Yeah. The current price. So what changed? Trick question, Lee. What changed? Because now it just says, I promise to pay the bearer two pounds. (laughs) So you can go into the Bank of England, they'll give you another two pounds back. What changed? What changed was in 1971, when the U.S. decided to withdraw its support for the their gold-backed currency. So instead of pegging their currency to gold, they withdrew that. 
the withdrawing of that was the ending of the Bretton Woods Agreement. Yeah, they came off the gold standard. And it's quite yeah. interesting because a lot of people who are sort of on the more sort of conspiracy theory side of this fail to understand the underlying principle around promissory notes and gold. So many, many, many years ago, certainly long before I was born, if you can imagine there was a time before that, there was, <laughs> let's say you were a merchant selling the finest clothing in Rome, and you've got all of these ounces of gold that people have come and bought clothing from you with. Obviously, you don't want to be lugging gold around because it's actually quite heavy. So what you used to do is you would take it to a goldsmith, and the goldsmith, for a small fee, would put the gold in his vault, and you would pay a fee for storing your gold in his vault. And in return, he would protect that vault, and he would look after it, and he was responsible if he got burned or whatever it was, he had to honor that deposit. And what he would do is he would give you a promissory note, which basically confirmed the amount of gold that you had put in his vault. So what tended to happen is these merchants then started realizing if I want to buy something else, rather than going back to the goldsmith and getting the gold out and taking it to this other place to buy the thing that I want to buy, I would just give the person my promissory note and say, well, when you're ready, you can go get the gold back from the guy at the goldsmiths. So it would pass the ownership. Whoever held that promissory note owned the gold. That's basically what it was. So it didn't matter who you were. There was no identity verification. If you arrived at a goldsmith with a promissory note, he was obliged to give you the gold to the value that was on the promissory note. And they would ask, the goldsmith to say, give me 10 of them worth, a you know, I've given you an ounce of gold, give me 10 promissory notes for a tenth of an ounce of each so that I can use it for smaller transactions if I choose to. So in a way, that's kind of where money came from, was this idea that you had these notes. It also, believe it or not, goes back to the days of the Knights Templar. And you would have these rich people taking a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And this is where the Knights Templar actually gained a lot of their wealth. Because what these rich people would do is they would go to a Templar church, like Temple Church in London, and they would deposit a sum of money in the Temple Church, and the Templars would issue them with a promissory note. So now they could travel to the Holy Land, and as long as they kept that promissory note safe, their money was safe. And when they got to Jerusalem, they would go to a temple church in Jerusalem and hand in their promissory note and get the value in Jerusalem. So international trade, international money transfers right there. Obviously, if they got attacked by bandits on the way who got hold of the promissory notes, you're buggered. But <laughs> you probably didn't survive the encounter. <laughs> So that's where it came from. But then came this, well, before we get into that, did you know about that, Lee? I had a fair idea. I think I'd, I'd watched a history show on, on the Templars, so I'm not yeah, surprised. Yeah, so basically the original banking system was you would take your gold or whatever your valuables were, you would deposit them in some sort of surety, you'd be given a receipt for that deposit, and that deposit, that receipt was exchangeable. Obviously it's open to fraud, but there were things like ring seals and sealed in wax and all of those sorts of things which gave authenticity. And we still have a similar thing today which is called a bearer bond, which it pays out regardless, there is no idea 
identity verification. It is literally if you own if that, that's what Die Hard the movie was all about was the bearer bonds that were in the safe in Nakatomi Towers. Because if you've got those bearer bonds, you're entitled to relinquish them for value. But now what bankers being bankers, as they have always been for centuries immemorial, what they realized is that they've got this vault full of valuable, whether it's jewels or gold or whatever it happens to be. And they realized that people were just exchanging the promissory notes and no one was ever coming back to claim the original deposit. So they had a cunning plan and they thought to themselves, you know what we're going to do? We're going to, for a fee, write promissory notes to people who don't deposit anything with us. And credit was created because what they would do is they would, let's say I've got 10 ounces of gold in my vault. I know that the odds, it's a bet, the odds that all 10 owners of one ounce of gold all coming on the same day to get their ounce of gold. And they worked out that actually, given the amount of people who actually come back to claim their gold, the vast majority of them, and honestly, it was, it's about 90% of the people never actually came back to claim the gold. They just exchanged these promissory notes. So these bankers thought to themselves, I know what we're going to do. For a fee, we will just write promissory notes to anyone willing to pay the fee. And the fee will be based on the value of the promissory note. That will be the rate, the interest rate, associated with issuing that promissory note. And so long as all these people don't come and ask for it at the same time, we'll be okay. And just last year, Silicon Valley Bank went under because there was a run on the bank because people were concerned, hang on a minute, I want to get my money out of there because I don't trust this bank anymore. And that's exactly what happened. And it still happens today, but it started thousands of years ago. And that is the fragility of the system that we operated. And the worst part about it is that it hasn't changed. And that still, to this day, the banks create money out of... It's actually called... Do you know what it's called, Lee? Yeah, it's called fractional reserve bank Absolutely. system. Or reserve, fractional reserve yeah. system. So obviously governments thought they need to come in and get in charge of all of this sort of thing and regulate because we've got to protect these poor people out there, these unwashed masses. So they have stipulated that a bank must retain... I think it's... Honestly, I don't know what the current rate is, but it's 3 or 4%. Basically, Basically, what it means, if you, let's say it's 3%, if you deposited £100 in the bank, the bank only needs to keep three of it. It can lend out the other 97 and create more money. And think about it this way. I put £100 into the bank. The bank owes me £100 because I've put it in the bank. I've got a promissory note, the deposit slip that says I've put £100 in your bank. The bank can take 97 of those pounds and lend it to Lee. So Lee borrows 97 of those pounds and she goes and buys something with that £97 and the person that she bought the thing from, let's say they happen to bank with the same bank, but doesn't really matter. But to keep it simple, that person takes that £97 and puts it back into the same bank. How much money is in the bank now? £197. So your £100 deposit has miraculously become £197 because both of you are entitled to come and withdraw that 
that money. So if both of you, so both myself, who deposited the £100, and the person that Lee bought, let's say, the bicycle from for £97, we get a bit concerned that maybe this bank is a bit shady and both of us go in on the same day and that person says, oh, I want my £97 back. And I go in and I say, I want my £100 back. Oops. (laughs) <laughs> we've we the bank have now got to give out 197 pounds but we actually only have 100 pounds now extrapolate that across everything and it just demonstrates how messed up this is and just to prove that i'm actually going somewhere with this whole conversation is let's think back to what i was saying about house prices that is exactly what happens with house prices and what it means is because because the bank can lend 97 of the £100 that I deposited to people who don't have £97, it increases the demand. So you've now got £197 worth of money to go and demand things. So now if we go back to our Apple seller, you've got when we started the conversation, we said, let's say only two people can afford to buy the apples, but I've got 10 apples. The person would have had to, the seller would have had to drop the price. However, the other eight apples, the people that can't afford to buy those apples can go off to the goldsmith and get a promissory note and go back to the apple seller and say, well, I've got money now. So now suddenly the demand for the apples goes up because before I could only sell two, but now I can sell 10, I could sell 20. So I can charge whatever I want for these apples. And that's what's happened to house prices. Only because the banks are creating money out of nothing. And if you really want to spend some time down a rabbit hole, just go onto YouTube and type in where does money come from? And you will, well, set aside a weekend (laughs) because it is a deep rabbit hole. And you will, don't take my word for it. This is not some knowledge that I've drawn from the ether that has been downloaded to me through prayer or meditation. It's knowledge that I have gained from working in financial services and found on the internet. It's really out there. The truth is out there, to quote Scully and Mulder. So we're up for another break. So let's go and have a quick break and we'll be back after this. Oh, I love this. We continue in moments. This is good. Yes, yes. You're locked to Trans Radio UK. Do you need someone to talk to? Feel you have no one that will listen. It doesn't have to be that way. Lessons because everyone needs to talk sometime. Call 0800 009 
Did you know we receive no funding here at Trans Radio UK? To keep us on air and growing, we rely on donations. To donate, please head to www.transradiouk.com and click the link. A regular payment of £20 will see you become a partner of Truck. Other options are available. Email info at transradiouk.com for details. A big thank you from all the team here at Trans Radio UK. The world's largest radio station for the trans community. Trans Radio UK. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. It's quite interesting because during the break, Lee and I were having a chat. And what did you call the bankers? They're banksters. They're a bunch of gangsters yeah, they stealing are the from banksters. us. Actually, you can Google, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Google Banksters, that'll teach you a thing or two. So yeah, it really is. The whole system that we exist in at the moment is just a complete and utter farce. Thomas Jefferson in 1776 wrote the following. Now bear in mind, this is from an American perspective, but it does bear repeating. He wrote, I believe that banks are more dangerous to our civil liberties than standing armies. If the American people ever allow the private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around the banks will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. 1776. This is not a new problem. It just hasn't ever been solved. And if we look back to 2008 and the financial crisis and that great benevolent act of corporate socialism where governments around the world bailed out the banks, the thing which really struck me, and this was probably what pushed me over the edge when it comes to my working in financial services, was that if you think about it one way, let us say for For example, the government had decided to give, in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008, imagine if they had given the UK population a one-year tax holiday, no income tax, no VAT, no taxes for a year. Now, before you say, oh, we could never have afforded that, let me let you in on a little secret. That would have cost less than what it actually cost to bail out the banks. And what would that have done? Yeah, we sit in great judgment on the person next to us and we say, oh yeah, but they would have just gone out and bought TVs and gone on holidays and they wouldn't have paid off their debts. Yeah, but they would have spent the money. That's the point. They wouldn't have ferreted it off in the Cayman Islands or British Virgin Territories. They would have spent it. And what would that spending have done? Yeah, it just... uh, Stimulated demand. What does stimulated demand drive? Productivity, because companies say, oh, I've only got two apples, but these people are demanding 10 of them. I need to go and grow more apples. That single action would have resolved the financial crisis overnight. And if they had said to those people, okay, it's a tax holiday. Yes, you've got your mortgage. We're not forgiving your mortgage, but we're nationalizing your mortgage. The government will buy 
buy the mortgages and you will pay means tested repayments on that mortgage until it is settled. That's the same thing that they did anyway because they bought RBS. They bought these failing banks. But you know what happened? The shareholders flitted off to the Cayman Islands with the ill-gotten gains. The people still owed the money and it didn't actually solve the problem. It was just a transfer, a massive transfer of wealth from the state to private enterprise. And that, listeners, is the biggest crime that has ever been perpetrated on any of us, ever. We talk about trans rights and pride and all the rest of it. It's bread and circuses. They are distracting us from this underlying evil that is the banking system. What do you think, Lee? Yeah, and I mean, it didn't stop there in 2008. It continues. You talk about the biggest transfer of wealth and the same kind of thing happened as an aftermath of COVID. There was a massive transfer of wealth as well that happened. Where did we get all the money to pay people to stay at home? We printed it. Yeah, we printed it, but only because they wanted to keep the status quo in all the other parts of the system. So as in 2008, the same thing in 2019, 2020, what it needed was a massive reorganization of the way we structure society. That's the problem. We keep getting these warnings and we keep not doing the right thing to solve the problem. It's that quote from Einstein that says, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result is the height of arrogance or stupidity. And that's the thing. We keep getting these warnings. 2008 financial crisis, the COVID pandemic. All it's showing us is the futility of the system that we currently operate in. And just at a microcosm, I started the job that I've had for the last three years, about three weeks before the lockdown. I have worked remotely for three years, and now the company is putting me under pressure to come into the office three days of the week. And my thing with that, and I get that there are some people that want to go into the office, and it's perhaps the cornerstone of their social system. But I'm 53 years old. I've got my friends. I've got people I choose to spend time with. I don't choose to spend face time with my colleagues. It's not because I don't like them. That's not the point. The point is they are a means to an end. I work with them to achieve a single-minded goal to go and do the things that we do. We're a hunting, we're like a pack, we're hunting and gathering, but we only come together for that sole purpose of doing that thing. And now, because we live in the technological age, we don't need to get together in packs to go and do the thing that we used to do, like freaking cavemen. And I'm really, really agitated about this at the moment, because we proved, all of us proved that we are able to be productive when left to our own devices and given autonomy over our personal self. But no, we must get back on those trains and we must go and jam ourselves into the underground. They're passing this stupid ULES extension thing in London. Do you know the single unhealthiest place in London? Take a guess, Lee. What's the worst air quality in London? Where are you going to find it? Underground? Exactly. It's not in the outer reaches of Surrey. It's not in Richmond. It's on the underground. But no, no, no. You know, we must use public transport. We must ram ourselves onto buses and trains and tubes. For what purpose? 
Yeah, exactly. You've been doing that for the last three years. I mean, I've I work I've worked from home now for seven years. So for four years before COVID made it popular. And I will never again work in an office environment. I'd rather not take the job and go for a lesser paid job because I can do my job quite effectively remotely and there's absolutely no purpose for me to sit in an office or to travel that far to sit in an office. And I agree with what you said. It's for work. It's not a social gathering. But, you know, if if people want to, if people want to go into the office, then let them do that. But then people who don't shouldn't be forced into it either. Yeah, exactly. They kind of, they put us under this pressure and they say, yeah, but you know, it's so good for your colleagues and all the rest of it. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think there's a single person working with me that can say they haven't learned from me over the last three years. They haven't learned something. I don't need to be looking over their shoulder or having lunch with them in the canteen to share my knowledge with them. It happens in everything I do, in every interaction we have on teams. We interface, we discuss, we talk. We don't need to be face to face to achieve that. And it only serves to, what's the right word here? It only serves to validate the egos of the managers. And it's the managers that are pushing us to do this because they're the ones that actually aren't doing anything. They've got nothing to do if they're not managing people. We're all just doing what we need to do. So we are running out of time. So I want to get to a few other key points on this just before we go into what I think the solution is. So it was quite interesting. In 2008, coincidentally, the South African government did an inquiry into banking charges. And in that particular report, I'm going to quote two things that came out of that report, which really tell you everything you need to know. It says, so one of the things, so this was Barclays Bank, the people I was working for, they said to the government inquiry, and I quote, credit cards are necessary because credit cards enable cardholders to make larger purchases than would otherwise have been the case. (laughs) So that is that whole thing. I've now got a credit card. I can go and buy those apples, even though I haven't yet earned the ounces of gold needed to buy those apples. It goes on to say the conclusion of the inquiry panel when it came to credit cards was like a mirage. The interest-free period serves as an attraction to those credit card users who prove unable to repay timelessly and who are thereby more easily drawn into high interest-bearing debt. So when you think that the base rate, as high as it is at 5%, and you paying 30% on a freaking credit card, what's happening to that other 25%? And that's just it in a nutshell. But the solution, listeners, actually lies in a very, very old principle that is actually shared across every single spiritual religious system that exists on the planet today. And it is known as Jubilee Debt Forgiveness. And I'm just going to read this to you because it says it better than I could describe it. So this is a little bit about Jubilee debt forgiveness. So it says Jubilee debt forgiveness is an ancient practice of forgiving debt over an established cyclic period of time. In the present day, the nation of Iceland is experimenting with the observance of this type of debt forgiveness. Debt relief existed in a number of ancient societies. Debt forgiveness is mentioned in the book of Leviticus, in which God God counsels Moses to forgive 
give debts in certain cases every jubilee year. And the jubilee year is described as the end of Shemitah, which is the last year of a seven-year agricultural cycle. The same theme was found in ancient bilingual Hittite Hurrian texts entitled The Song of Debt Release. In ancient Athens, debt forgiveness was also found where in the 6th century BCE, the lawmaker Solon instituted a set of laws, and I can't pronounce it. I suppose I should have prepared better for this, but I can't pronounce it. And it said, in which cancelled all debts and retroactively cancelled previous debts that caused slavery and serfdom, freeing debt slaves and debt serfs. And what are we today, listeners? We are debt slaves, be honest. And in Islam, the Quran supports debt forgiveness for those who are unable to pay as an act of charity and remission of the sins of the Creator. So underlying every single core religious system on the planet, well, in the Western world at any rate, is this idea that you cannot, the reason why they did it is they knew that you can't just keep building up debt. And 2008 for me was the tipping point. That was that moment of truth where those banks should have been allowed to fail because it would have actually resulted in debt forgiveness. If they had just written off everyone's debt and said, okay, everybody's on the same level, we start again. And they've realized civilizations far older than ours have realized that this is the only way to keep an economic system working, is if periodically debt is written off. What do you think, Lee? I think it would be a great idea, but I think it's it's too difficult to implement. You would need some kind of a, a global... Do I need to read my poem again from last week? Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, don't tell me I can't do it. You know, I, I, I agree I with can't. you, but <laughs> it's like, I think the problem is that there would need to be some kind of global consensus. And we just can't seem to get a consensus on much these days because you can't have one country doing yeah, it and not thing. another. But I agree with you. What we need is a complete and utter collapse of the current financial system and then a rebuilding up from the ground. Mm. It's like every time I see these crises, I get excited because I think this is this it. Is this it. is the moment Isn't when it? it's all going to change. And then it doesn't. It didn't in 2008, and it hasn't subsequent to the pandemic. We've just been pulled back into the same, we want life to go back to normal. Normal for who? Normal for the 1% who are just getting richer and richer. And this, to me, listeners, is the fundamental point here, is we've got to our fights for rights is very important. Trans pride, pride, all of these things, absolutely. We've got to fight for those. Those are small battles, though, in this bigger war, which is this war against these banksters. And that's the last I'm going to say on it. Is there anything you want to say, Lee, as we wrap up? Yeah, I think it's quite interesting what's happening with the BRICS nations and how that is being a competitor, I think, to our Western trading. So I think watch that because I think a lot of other Southern Hemisphere nations are going to want to climb onto the back of the BRICS nations as trading partners. And that might just be the collapse of the current financial system that we've all been waiting for, or you and I have been waiting for. Yeah, or they'll just stop the train long enough to chuck off one set of bankers and replace, replace it with another. With another. 
<laughs> I remain ever hopeful, though. And I hope you guys have enjoyed this a little bit more cerebral, not so much spiritual, but it's something that's been on my mind lately, especially after my boss told me I have to go back into the office. So I'm agitated about this. So we're going to leave it there. I hope you've enjoyed this. And that's a goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you for listening. See you next week in Love and Light. This is Trans Radio UK. Yo, this is Risk. Happy Pride Month, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Hi, everybody. It's Avril here, and I just wanted to wish you a very, very happy Pride Month. Please remember that Pride was always a protest. Hi, guys. Happy Pride from Danny. Have an amazing month of June and be as queer as you can be. And remember, trans women are women. Hello, it is me, DJ Gloria. Happy Pride from everyone at the Trans Radio UK team. Please check our socials for more information. Trans Radio UK. For the community, by the community, Trans Radio UK. All hit music. This is Rihanna. Hey, this is Pink. Trans Radio UK. Did you know we have an active and fun chat room? Come and join presenters and other listeners at transradiouk.com. Truck United FC, our award-winning football team. Catch all the latest action at www.truckunitedfc.com. Bringing you the best music.